Today's sermon text is 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Kind of an ominous ending to a short text. Well, let me ask you, how many Bibles do you own in your home? How many Bibles do you have? And by the way, if you don't have a Bible here, you're visiting, and you, and you want a Bible, we have a stack out in the foyer. Just take one as a gift from this church. We would just ask you to maybe read it. Um, but we'd like to give you, make sure you have a Bible to, to have. Uh, on average, Americans have 4.7 Bibles in their home. Uh, only about a third of those same Americans uh, read it more than once a week. Uh, but the, the irony is that 56% of people in America will say that the Bible contains God's words without error. Uh, so there seems to be this disparity. I want you to know the incredible importance that is upon you for any development of faith to try to understand this is what I believe about the Bible and this is my behavior with the Bible. You know, if I believe the Bible's God's word, uh, then do I, do I live in light of it being God's word? It's really essential to us as much as a breast milk is to a child. So essential to our faith. Now, when Paul was writing this letter to the Thessalonians, uh, he had finished kind of rebuking those accusers, those opponents that he was facing. And you see him turn again to give another word of thanks. And this time he's thanking this church for receiving and accepting the word that he preached as if it came from God. Uh, he's giving them thanks that when they heard him preach the gospel, uh, they actually thought, this is God speaking to me, and responded accordingly. So here's what I want to do today. I just want to look at this brief little text and, and try to understand what does it mean to hear and receive? You know, what's it mean to accept the word of God? What, what's it mean to really to hear the Bible as if God were speaking to us. And then I want to give just three pieces of evidence that you can identify in your own life, whether you see the word this way or not. Kind of evidence for you both hearing and accepting the word of God. And that way, it's good news for you because if you don't see it in your life, then it identifies maybe I'm being deceived. I'm hearing it, I think I understand it, but I'm not doing anything with it. So it might expose uh, perhaps some self-deceit. Or it may encourage you, because if you do see the evidence in your life, then you're, I am hearing correctly, and I am believing. So look with me just at what it means to hear and accept the Word of God. Look with me back at 13. He says, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word, of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. This word of God. So, so here Paul is giving them thanks that when he preached, 
they saw him as speaking for God, actually speaking God's word. Kind of like an Old Testament scene, you know, when an Old Testament prophet would stand up and he'd say, thus saith the Lord. You can hear, you can just see all the ears bending. What is God going to say to us? And they are receiving it. They're not hearing Paul give a new philosophy. They're not hearing Paul give a new human wisdom for life. They're hearing him as if God were speaking to him. Uh, when it says that they received the word, uh, that word means that they, they heard it with their ears. They heard it outwardly. So Paul was speaking in a human language, declaring to them the nature of the gospel. And when it says they accepted the word, it means that they welcomed it. Kind of like you would welcome an old friend into your home. And you treat him as an honored guest. They heard the word as if it were from God. Now remember, you heard word of God, word of God. The word of God and the gospel of God are synonymous. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So here's Paul coming into town, and he preaches this word of God, and they hear it as if it were God. He preaches this gospel, and they hear it as if God were speaking to them, that Paul would just be a mediator of a very important message. Now, the gospel that he preached, what did he say to them? I mean, that they heard or that they listened to him as if it were God. Remember back in Acts 17, Luke kind of gives us a summation of what Paul preached. Let me just read it for you. He says, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaimed you is the Christ. So this is what he's preaching. Now listen, we live in a highly pragmatic age. We contend, though, in an effort to reduce things so that they're understandable to everybody, we can be reductionistic. In other words, we can over-reduce things. So we have sections in bookstores, you know, mechanics for dummies and carpenters for dummies. You know, we want to reduce things to the lowest common denominator, and that can be helpful in a lot of things. We often do that with the gospel. We often look at, what's the gospel message? Well, just believe in Jesus and you go to heaven. Well, that's wonderful, and that's true, but, but there's significantly more that Paul seemed to be preaching to them that they heard as if it were from God. And when Paul preached that Jesus is the Christ and he had to suffer, he's not just simply saying, believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. No, he's saying God's doing an incredible work here. So he came and he preached that, that God although he created all things good and beautiful and right. We have sinned against God. Now, I say we, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. We weren't present with them, but we were present in them. And, and, and just as they, we would have rebelled, we know it in our own hearts. We rebel against God and others all the time. We feel the guilt, the stain of sin. And so Paul's saying, listen, this is the human dilemma. It's not political, it's not educational, it's not medical. The human dilemma is spiritual. And God has sent a son, and he made the promise back in Genesis 3. The promise was longed for throughout the Old Testament. And what Paul's saying is, the promise, a deliverer, a Messiah, a servant of God would come and save, he came. And his name's Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Paul's praying. He's saying the one that was to come to save us from this, just, this litany of problems with humanity, he has come, and he died for it. In fact, he had to die. Why did he have to die? Well, to atone for our sins. 
I mean, our sins are not just little mistakes and misjudgments. We have sinned against God, and so he had to die. This is the message he's preaching. And this Christ who has come and has died, and he's been raised, and now he's ascended to the right hand, and he'll come again, and he's going to make all things beautiful. He's going to make all things new, and he's going to return everything to God. And it's going to be a better Eden than it was in the first Eden. That's the message he preached. And they heard that, and they who were burdened by sin and shame and guilt... They accepted it. They, they believed it. So, you know, receiving it is hearing it outwardly through the ears. Accepting it is hearing it inwardly in your heart by faith. They believed it. Now, when I say believe, this is another area where I think we can be overly reductionistic. We often teach our kids, just say, ask Jesus in your heart. It's a sweet sentiment, it is. I understand it. But we don't want to overduce faith. When I talk about believing in Jesus Christ, I'm talking about understanding what he has done, that you have to have some degree of comprehension, and that you believe it's true, you assent to its truthfulness. It's not just one of many fables being told about the various gods of this world, that you believe, no, this is the true one, and that you trust it. This is the critical element that is missing, that you trust him to save you. You give up these self-salvation projects where we're going to keep trying to better ourselves so that God may one day say, you've tried hard enough, I accept you. It's to give up that. And it's like the younger son in the parable of the prodigal. He just comes home and says, Dad, I just want to be a slave, just take me. I mean, I'm a mess, but just take me. That's what it means. This is a picture of conversion. They heard and they believed. So, so when you come, when you, when you think about the scriptures, what do you believe about the Bible? Uh, do you believe that the Bible is the actual Word of God? And many people believe that it's a good book, and it was written by educated men, and they really wanted to help people. Is that what you believe? Because if you believe it's written by men, then, you know what, it becomes suggestive, it becomes informative. Uh, you don't need to necessarily follow it. Uh, it can be outdated, it can be... It can be kind of passed up with new information. But if you believe, and this is I'm asking you, if you believe that the scriptures are the actual words of God, then it means its truth is transcendent. It's outside of just this culture and this time. It's for all people for all time. It's transformative. It changes our lives. Is this what you believe about it? Because it's really essential to your faith to know, do I believe it or don't I believe it? And if I believe it, what am I doing with it? Now, some people want to say, well, you know, should you make a defense of the Bible being God's word? I've never felt that to really be super helpful. I, there is a place for apologetics, no doubt. Uh, but to try to defend the Bible, you know, Jerome was a church father. A church father is one of those church leaders in the first 500 years of the church. He was once asked, you know, how do you defend the Bible? He goes, defend the Bible? He goes, I'd rather soon defend a lion. And I think Charles Spurgeon, that, that British preacher in the 19th century, I think he picked up on that because this is what he said. A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. And yet, yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was not humbling to them, 
that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. He says, just let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. Just let the lion out. Just preach the gospel. We don't need to defend. We don't need to defend to receive it and to accept it. There is a place for apologetics, as I said. Uh, but oftentimes, I think we, we think that we can outmaneuver them intellectually into believing. But, it, but you notice that Paul thanked God that they accepted it. That God has to open the eyes to see this. So, so how do you hear? How do you respond when you hear the word of God? So if you hear a command, are you inclined to, to obey? Uh, when you hear a truth about the nature of God, are you inclined to worship? How, how, do, you, how do you respond to the word? Now, you know, take preaching, for example. When you come, how do you respond to the word that's preached? Now, I recognize that preaching can vary from place to place. Eloquence and style and creativity, that they can vary. Just ought to be grateful that we have all three here. But, um, but, uh, but preaching itself, just, just for the record, is really just exposing the truth of the text. That's what we call expositional preaching. Preaching is just exposing it. You read the first two chapters of this book, you see that Paul's trying to get out of the way of the word. He's just wanting to take the word and declare it. He, he's, he is persuasive, but he's not worried about all the nuances that many of our orators worry about. He just declares the word clearly. So two theologians have good definitions for preaching. He says, in preaching, the word of God delivers through the preacher a message from God to his people about God and godliness. Or another one, God himself is using the preacher as an instrument, as a tool to mediate an encounter with you by the word of God so that God can speak into your life. Is this how you see preaching? Do you see it as an encounter with God? That you're going to hear this word, hopefully without too many distractions and without too much confusion, you hear the word of God as an encounter that will lead you to greater worship or greater obedience. Is this how you receive? Is this how you outwardly hear the word? Because, because really the responsibility is significantly upon yourself to make preaching good. Uh, you, you, you need to be alert. You need to be awake. You, you need to be attending to it. You need to be thinking, I need this. There's a lot of practical helps in terms of how do you make more out of a Sunday morning? going to bed early, reading the text beforehand, asking the Spirit of God to open your eyes to what's going to be said, asking for God to give you a submissive heart, that even if it's not in an area in which your life is perhaps in a crisis time, that you would still profit from it because it might be useful to you tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You know, we don't want to be naive. We don't want to think that we can just come in and hear us text of scripture and just assume we're going to understand it all god's word isn't like the morning paper it's it's layered with truth and, and so we want to be praying and considering these things and you want to be praying for me that i don't confuse it and distract it and get in the way of it with too much too much fluff for other stuff love the quote that again spurgeon 
uh, referenced in terms of the difficulty that some churches do have with their pastors. I pray you don't with me. But he said, if some men were sentenced to hear their own sermons, it would be a righteous judgment upon them. <laughs> and they would soon cry out with Cain, my punishment is greater than I can bear. <laughs> I can identify with Chuck on that one. But th that's how we, that's why we hear the word, and to accept the word is to believe it. And then to walk out of here with the intention of doing it. Otherwise, we're like the man who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. He's deceiving himself because he's hearing, but he's not doing. So that's what he's commending these people for. I commend you for that. I often ask, why do you show up week after week after week? And I'm thankful to God for so many of you. You, you want to hear it well, and you want to live it well. That's a great encouragement. So that's what he's speaking about. In verse 13, he's just giving thanks to God for the people and how they received and accepted the word. Let me give you three evidences that you can see in your own life. Are you hearing and receiving and accepting the word well? And, and the first one is that you're really changed by it. Look at the end of 13 with me. At the end of 13, he says uh, that they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So this word is to be at work. Now that word for work, that little word, it's used most often in the scriptures of God's supernatural activity in his creation. So it's God is at work in you through his word. Now we already read in chapter 1 with these Thessalonians that God was at work. Remember he commended and he thanked God for their works of faith, their labor of love, their hope in Christ. He said you heard the word of the gospel, not as the word of men. He said, but you received it with power of the Spirit. And remember he said in verse 9 that they changed from serving idols to serving the living and true God. So what we have here is Paul saw the fruit of the gospel in their life. He saw that they were changed. They weren't worshiping at the temple. They were worshiping Jesus Christ now. This is the work of God. What God's word does is, is as it's revealed to you, as you learn about the character of God, you're drawn to his beauty. And you want to worship. You want to consider his majesty. Or maybe you hear the word and it convicts you. Uh, you're kind of exposed. You know, the word is like a mirror. And, and I said last week, it kind of exposes maybe bad intentions or sinful actions. And so it, you're, it's pointed out to you through the word, and so you repent. Or maybe the word instructs you. It gives you guidance on how to resolve conflict or how to handle gossip or other issues in life. Or maybe the word just encourages you so that you persevere in faith, even in the midst of suffering, because you see the hope that God brings before his people. And you're inclined to think, you know what? What I have coming is better than what I'm suffering now. And so the word is to work in you. But remember this, the word doesn't work in you independent of you. Uh, the scriptures, the gospel, preaching the gospel, it's not like a, it's not like a, a magical incantation uh, where the magician kind of says the words and the person is affected whether they believe it or not. No, notice it says the word is at work in you believers. Now, actually, it really is literally at work in you who are believing. Uh, so, so there's this interaction right now going on, actually right now, where I'm speaking and you're choosing to believe or not. And it's in believing. So in other words, you don't grow and you don't change based upon the spiritual capital that you built up 10 years ago. You're growing and changing day by day by walking by faith. So you're hearing the word and you're believing it's from God and you're responding to it. And this is a moment by moment decision. This is why we live by faith and not by sight. 
We have to live by faith in the Word of God. You know, Paul says this in, in Romans 15. He says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. Well, I'm all about that. I want some joy and peace. But he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So it's as you're believing in God, who is a God of hope, who can give peace and joy, that's when he begins to move. So it's this synergism with us and the Spirit of God being changed. That's what he's speaking about here. Uh, so have you seen a change in your life through the Word? In other words, as you meditate on the Word, and when I mean meditate, I'm talking about thinking about it. So you read a scripture. So I went through Psalm 34 this morning, just kind of making my boast in the Lord, just looking at it verse by verse. Do I believe this? What is it teaching me? How does it lead me about God? Every scripture of text, you can always ask, what's it say about God? How should I respond to what I just heard about God? Now, you can do every text that way and be a great expositor. It's exposing God's word. Uh, so this idea of, of meditating, you know, so in Psalm 1, that's kind of the gatekeeper of all the psalms. Uh, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. A and it says that he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. If you had to be a tree, boy, that's the place to be, right by streams of water, that you're never failing to yield fruit. You're never failing to wither. You, you will never wither. You'll always have life poured into you. Uh, so how God's word changes us is by meditating on it. Do you practice that? Do you look at it? Do you, do you meditate? Like a lozenger in your mouth and you have a sore throat, you just roll it over. But secondly, uh, in terms of being changed by God's word, you want to obey it. You do want to obey it. If you are convicted of something, the best response to the spirit of God is to move in light of it. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's some other change in your life. But we want to obey what we read and what we understand. And then last, share it with others. If you hear something from the scriptures, then tell someone else about it. It's the greatest way to pack it into your mind and to maintain it as serving you as well. So, so those are the things we want to do. Now, it changes us. I, I do want to be honest with you. It does it incrementally. You don't, you don't read God's word, and you know, sometimes God may move so boldly, like in Paul's life. But most of the time, God's word moves almost imperceptively. You almost don't see it. So Jesus compares the word to a seed. Well, if you plant a tomato seed on Monday, you're not looking for a tomato on Tuesday. I mean, it, it grows slowly, and that's the nature of God's word, that it grows slowly. So ask your spouse or a friend, say, what have you seen change in me over the word? How have I changed? Have I changed at all? And, and point out to me ways that I have. If they say, I'm having trouble coming up with any change that has occurred in your life through the scriptures, then just stop and pray. God is so gracious. He is kind to us. He's long-suffering. Just ask him. Say, God, help me. Give me a love for the word. Uh, give me the grace to follow the word that I hear. Don't worry about the word that you don't understand. Just follow the one that you do. That's all you need to do. So that's the first evidence that you should change through the hearing of the word. You guys come week after week after week. What change has been wrought in your life? What change came from the whole series in, in uh, Ecclesiastes? What change has come regarding the spirit of God or Thessalonians? Go back and read it. And, and remind yourself of what you learned and how God might use that to change you.
Okay, the second evidence that you have received the word and you've been and you have uh, accepted it is that you can endure opposition. You can endure suffering. Look with me at 14. At 14, he says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now what's happening here? Well, Paul's explaining to them, he's giving thanks to God, that I know you received it, I know you understood it, I know you believed it, because you kept enduring opposition. You, you kept being patient in suffering. You know, when a person is willing to endure suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ, that is inward evidence that God is at work in you. That when you can remain faithful in the midst of suffering and opposition, you know that God's doing a work in you. And, and that's what, this is what Paul's doing. He compares this church in uh, Thessalonica, he compares it to these churches in Judea around Jerusalem. He's saying you become like them. Uh, they were kind of held out. They were the first set of churches planted in this new kingdom work of Jesus. And he's saying you became like them. In other words, he's encouraging them that our communion with other believers isn't in the type of worship we have. It's not in the type of language we speak. It's not in the songs that we sing. It's not how we dress for worship. Our communion with the saints is through suffering. Uh, we are joining in this apocalyptic you know, pattern of God that God's people, because they hold to divine truth from God in a world that opposes divine truth, we're going to suffer. You have to embrace that truth. Paul warned them about it when he was there. He says in chapter 3, he says, you believer, he says, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul said that not just to them, but he said that to us. If you're hearing God's word and you're receiving it, you're accepting it, you have to, you have to embrace the reality that following one who suffered from the hands of men means that we follow the same path. You know, that this idea of enduring and suffering is going to authenticate your faith. It distinguishes you. Enduring in times of opposition to the gospel, it, it is going to unite us together in ways that are unique. We will need each other in a tremendous way. Enduring opposition together, it's an example to the world that we think Christ is actually worth more than the suffering that we may have right now. And, and we saw that in chapter 1. He commended them. Do you remember he said to them that you received the word in affliction with joy through the Spirit and you became examples to the believers in Achaia and Macedonia? Uh, th that is the path for the history of the church of most people. I think we've been in, in a unique bubble. So when you've encountered a conversation, for example, how quick are you to dock or to divert when the conversation goes in a direction that is more anti-Christian or anti-faith? Have you tended to take the silent road? Have you tended to try to use humor to move the conversation? Have you kind of just faded away? I'm not, I'm not saying that in every conversation where God gets thrown under the bus that we enter in kind of full speed ahead, but, but I think we need to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within you. Let the lion out. Just let him out. You know, Paul's not looking to always persuade. He is at points just declaring, hey, people are asking questions out there. What about life? What's ahead for us? What's the new normal? 
How do we deal with these? They've got all kinds of questions. And I'll tell you, politics won't answer it. And vaccines and medicine are not going to answer these questions. It's going to be the king of the universe. It's going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives meaning, value, hope, security in the midst of very turbulent waters that we have coming up and very uncertain times. It's going to be the bedrock. It's going to be, it's going to be the rock that we stand upon of the gospel that will maintain us, strengthen us, and give us even patience in enduring opposition. So it's evidence if you're hearing the word and you're accepting it. You're going to know that by God's activity in you because you'll be patient when people come against people of faith. Okay, the third example or the third evidence of what does it mean to accept and uh, to receive and accept the word is that you're going to entrust yourself to God in the midst of this. You're going to entrust, look with me at 15 and 16. These are very harsh words. I want to read these to you because a lot of theologians are calling Paul anti-Semitic. They're harsh language. We need to understand it. He says in 15 and 16, those who killed uh, both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So it was always to fill up the measure of their sins. But he says, wrath has come upon them at last. So he's speaking about these people who are, it, it really seems harsh language. We don't, we don't feel comfortable with this kind of judgment language. And so this is what leads people to often say, well, Paul seems like an anti, he seems almost anti-Semitic. Now, he's Jewish, so he's not anti-Semitic. I think what Paul is doing, he's getting in long, a long line of these Old Testament prophets. These Old Testament prophets would come into town and they would declare judgment upon a people or a nation when they reject God. You know, God is the Holy One. He's given us life. And when people reject God and reject his word and reject his people, uh, then he is declaring judgment on them. And Jesus did the same thing. If you have time this afternoon, read Matthew 23. Jesus starts saying, woe, woe to you Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, woe. Over and over, he keeps, he keeps saying these woes. We don't speak that way anymore, but it's a way of pronouncing judgment on people. So you have the Old Testament prophets doing it. You have Jesus himself. There is something God is to be reckoned with. That's the reality. And, and, and the judgment came from the prophets, it came from Jesus, and here it comes from Paul. Now, Paul's speaking about his own opposition that he faced. But he really speaks to the opposition that all Christians may face at one point in time. And what Paul's doing is he's encouraging them, entrust yourself to God. Commit your way to God. Don't try to take up arms and defend yourself against every slight that you may face. No, entrust yourself to God first is what he's calling us to do. And that's why he says there at, at the end, he says, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, what does that mean? Wrath, has wrath already happened? Has judgment already happened? I, I don't think so. You know, in scriptures, there's something called the now and the not yet principle. Things happen now, but when they happen now, they're not in their fullness. They're not yet complete. And that's what we see in judgment. A judgment began with the coming of Christ. You remember John the Baptist, so he's baptizing people. Jesus hasn't even begun his ministry. And, and John the Baptist says the axe is already at the root of the tree. In other words, the tree's going down. The axe is already swinging at the tree. What he was saying is at the preaching of the gospel, when Jesus Christ came in the flesh in this world and he declared the kingdom of God is now at hand, repent and believe the gospel, judgment began then. 
That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, you know what preaching? He says preaching always has one of two things. It has the aroma of life and it has the aroma of death. What's he mean by that? He means that it's saving some and it's building up judgment against another. It never goes out without doing one of those two things. And that's an intimidating thing for a preacher to hear. And that's why Paul said, who's up for such a task? Who is sufficient for these things? But the Thessalonians aren't scared. Why? Well, because in chapter 1, verse 10, we already read. He says, you are waiting for a son from heaven who has been raised from the dead and who has delivered us from the wrath that is to come. We don't fear. We don't fear the wrath. And, and, and we don't fear the suffering or the opposition that we may face. Why? Because he's been raised from the dead. Our life is eternally secure in God. He's really giving us a little treatise on how to handle suffering here. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, um, a German theologian in the Second World War, died just before the Allies um, released their prison. Uh, but, but he wrote these words. He says, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. And so the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be part of the kingdom of Christ. He wants rather to be among friends, to sit among the roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. So, so that is the lot of the church. And he's saying, entrust yourself to God. He will deal with those who oppose. First Peter, in his letter, uh, he said this about Jesus. He said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Think how often we quickly want to threaten to stop the, uh, the suffering. It says uh, that he continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter says to us, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So when we're facing opposition, we're doing good back. We're not, doing, we're not returning evil for evil, but we're returning good for evil. That's how we entrust ourselves to God. So entrusting yourself to God, you have to remember to embrace the reality that judgment will come I mean, I know we don't hear this, the fire and brimstone kind of preachers. I'm just simply saying what it says. I'm exposing you. The wrath will come. That God has judged the world in a flood. He judged the nation of Israel and their failure. He read Isaiah 13 to 23. He judges all the nations around Israel. God will judge. Don't think that the patience of God so that others may repent that delays judgment. Don't think it cancels judgment. It just delays it. So don't forget the reality. And, and, and you know uh, you must embrace the reality that we need this judgment, don't we? I, I mean, when we talk about the wrath of God, it, it kind of is like, I hate it when he talks about that. You know, it, it feels awkward. It almost feels uncomfortable to talk about the wrath of God. But don't we need the justice of God to come? You think about all the innocent people that have suffered so violently, whether sexually or racially or financially, or they've been given bad turns. Who will ever, who will ever speak for them? All the suffering across all the countries of this world, over all the years of, of human existence, and all the people that never had their fair shake, who will speak for them? It will be God on that final day. 
He will make all things right. He will make all things. We need God's wrath. We need God's justice to come. And if we were honest with ourselves, we would recognize that it should also come to us, shouldn't it? Because we've sinned and we've treated people unfairly. We've treated people harshly. We've spoken ill on people. His judgment should come to us as well, shouldn't it? I mean, we're no different than the rest of the world. And yet we have to remember that deliverance comes through judgment for us. Deliverance comes through judgment. This is the gospel story. This is the story of the Christian faith. That Jesus Christ has come to take upon himself, not just our sins, but the judgment, the righteous judgment of God upon himself. This is what we call propitiation. It's a fancy word, propitiation. Let me explain what it means. It means more. It means more than just he takes our sins away. What propitiation means is it changes the attitude of God. God had a wrathful attitude against us for our sin, and by Jesus' work, God's attitude changes from wrathful to loving. Now he's a father to us, and he loves us. So, that, so you don't ever have to think, God is still angry at me. If you have faith in Christ, God is both just in punishing sin and the justifier of those with faith in Christ. That means he is no longer angry. When you have faith in Christ and you sin, you return to God as a father, not as a judge. That's why you can boldly go. You don't have to clean yourself up before you go into the palace. You go in there all mucked up. You say, Father, I, I blew it again. Would you please forgive me? His attitude towards you is loving right now for those in faith because Christ has borne the wrath for you. His disposition changed. You don't need to worry, will he stop loving me? You know, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, loves me not. You know, you hope you end up on the right one when you're picking the daisy. You don't feel that way with God. God is disposed to you now because of, and what this does is it makes us not treat sin casually. It makes us really happy in Jesus. I mean, we are just thankful, thankful for Christ that he has come. And he, by necessity, had to die and be raised that we would be with God forever, sons and daughters. So you see a short little verse here. But he speaks to us about how we ought to hear and accept the word of God and the fruit of accepting. If you walk out of here really believing, you, you've heard me now, and if you believe it, then you walk out of here thinking, I want to be changed. How's God going to change me? You've had an encounter with God today. It may, your hair might not have gone up on your arms, but you've had, God has spoken to you through just exposing the word and uh, it's going to change you. It's going to give you strength to endure in opposition. And it's going to give you the grace to entrust yourself to the one who will judge justly and rightly. I thank God for you. I thank God week after week you come and you listen. And just remember, imperceptibly, you're changing and you're growing. Changing from glory to glory. So let's just take a moment now and just give him thanks for his word. And if you're here and this is really new to you, the, the gospel and Jesus bearing wrath and our sins, if that causes you a degree of, of uncertainty or uneasiness, I would, I would ask you to speak with a member of this church outside the doors when you, when you exit the building and, and, uh, or email us, an elder, a staff member. We'd love to talk to you about this further. And then I'll pray for, let's just talk, let's just, uh, for a few moments of silence, let's appeal to God for grace, and then, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.